Father in heaven, we do stand only in the power of Christ, by the blood of Christ, because of the all-sufficient and completed work of Christ. And now we pray that your word would be alive to us. Just as Christ was alive to the disciples as he walked with them, as he rose, as they saw him, may your word be just as alive as having Jesus right here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter in chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now uh, see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, in these opening verses of this letter, Peter is, is, is identifying that which is true about this group of people. These are observations, not commands. He's saying, these are true of you. He's simply affirming them, reiterating them, these characteristics to them. He's said that they're elect exiles of the dispersion. And that all has occurred because they belong to God, because of his foreknowledge, that is, his foreloving them, his choosing of them, because the Holy Spirit has taken and separated them from everyone else so that they could be the recipients of the blessing of God. And it's for the purpose of, of obeying Jesus and, 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 and confirming and affirming the covenant that God has made in Christ to forgive their sins and to be their people, and that he would be, God would be, their very God. And, and they're people who rejoice because they have great hope. They have great hope because of what has been done for them. They're recipients of the mercy of God. They know that they've been born again into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. They know that they have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for them that can't perish, that will never be defiled, that will never fade. And they know that they're being guarded by God's power through the very faith which has been given to them which will bring to them ultimately this great salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Not only that, but they have great hope in the present because even though they're going through various trials and these trials are real and these trials are bringing grief to them and suffering to them and pain to them and all of that, still they have hope enabling them to rejoice because they know that these trials that come and the grief that they're experiencing is actually testing and proving their faith. This faith which is so precious, more precious than gold, more precious than anything we could ever imagine, because it's through this faith that God is guarding them. So if they are going to receive this inheritance, they must persevere in faith. And so he says, God is guarding you through faith. And now he's saying that since this faith is so special to God, so precious to him and to us, God has a vested interest in it. And so he brings these trials. So don't, don't be concerned. Don't, 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 don't be faked out by the trials. You know, trials in life are just like scarecrows in fields. A farmer puts up a scarecrow to make the birds think there's nothing good here. Trials seem to be scarecrows telling us there must not be anything good here. And God says, no, 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 no. The very best is here. The very best is here. And so this trial is, 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 is proving your faith strengthening your faith, refining your faith, proving your faith to be genuine so that you can be well guarded so that you'll be found to the praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. See, all that's true of them. All that's to be true of us. Now, he comes now with five new observations about this group of people. One, they believe in Christ. These are verses 8 and 9 that will occupy us today. One, they believe in Christ. Two, they love Christ. Three, they rejoice. Four, they're obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And five, all of that is true, even though they haven't seen Jesus and they don't see him now. Right? Those are the five new observations. They love him. They believe in him. They rejoice. They're obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And all of that, even though they don't see him. Now, of course, when we look at these first three, the fact that they love and believe in him and rejoice, those three go together. It's a package. It isn't just sort of three different things, but it's three related aspects of the context of their lives and ours as well, that they, they, they do love Christ. That is, they have an affection for him. They've been moved by who he is and what he's done to latch upon him and desire communion with him and union with him. They, they love him. They have this affection towards them. They've been moved, stirred in their hearts. This isn't just some duty or, or some sort of objective uh, relationship, but this is, this is real. There's a love for Christ in them that's observable to Peter. He says, you love him. And of course, they believe in him. They have faith in him. That is... They rely upon him. They trust in who he is and what he's done and what people say that he's done. They trust in him. They rely upon him. And all of that brings rejoicing. Rejoicing is kind of, kind of the tip of the iceberg. Rejoicing is kind of that, that evidence that says, all right, you really do love him. Because there's no love without joy. Love doesn't happen unless one's thrilled to love. Unless there's joy in loving. And you believe in him, thus you rejoice in him, because how could you not? 
So those three together. But I think if we were to put them in logical order, and I don't think Peter does that necessarily. I don't think that's his concern. But if we were going to put them in logical order, belief would come first. Because you see, in order to, to love him and to rejoice in him, you must first embrace him, believe in him. And of course, to believe in him means to rely upon what we know is true of him to rely upon him, to trust in him. Certainly that would include the right knowledge of who Christ is. Oftentimes people come to me and, and they say, do you believe in Jesus? And I say, yes. And they say, I don't know how you could believe in Jesus. And my initial response is normally to say, well, tell me about this Jesus in whom you don't think I should believe. And then they describe him. Well, I don't believe him. That's not the Jesus I believe in. You've got it wrong. You don't know him. You don't don't know who he is. He claimed to be the very son of God, God incarnate, God with us, the very one who is throughout all eternity in glory, God, laying down his right to his glory in order to come and humble himself as a human being to take on all of our infirmities and all of our weaknesses, yet without sin. So he could live in such a way for us is our representative before God to do all the things that we can't to please the Father and then to take upon himself our sin and become, you know the big word, a propitiation for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. That Jesus, that very one who came and said, if you honor me, you honor God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you believe in me, you believe in God. If you receive me, you receive God. But if you're ashamed of me, then you're ashamed of God. And if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in God. And if you don't honor me, you don't honor God. He said, I and the Father are one, that very same Jesus. That Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, you can't live without me. He says, I'm the light of the world. You can't see God without me. You can't know God without me. I'm the one in whom God is visible. I'm the one in whom God can be seen. And life through me, I'm the light of the world. He said, I'm the door. You can't get in. You can't come into the kingdom of heaven unless you come through me. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Without me, you're, 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 you're lost. You're just out there, helpless and harassed on your own. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. There's no real life without me. He says, I'm the true vine. Unless you're connected to me, No fruit, no real fruit, could ever come. Unless you're connected to me, there's no life in you. That Jesus you see, that very same Jesus who said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That Jesus, that Jesus, that compassionate Jesus, who when he saw needs, his heart would go out and he would heal and he would touch and he would feed And he would forgive that Jesus, you see, to trust, to rely. So we have this knowledge of who he is. We have this knowledge about what he did. The Apostle Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that. And so you see, he took on our sin. He took on our weakness to live in such a way that he might give to us his righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he did. He ascended, so now what he's 
doing is interceding for us, praying for us, guarding us, helping us. He sent the Spirit to live in us and to bring His work to fulfillment in our lives so we can come to believe and to trust and all of that in Him. That's what He did. That's what He's doing. And we know a day will come when He'll return and bring it all to completion. That Jesus, that's the knowledge, that's the information. And so to trust in Him, to rely upon Him, to believe in Him, means we need to have the right information about Him and ascend to it and say, yes, that's true of Him. But also this, we need to rely upon it. We need to trust it. We need to rest in that truth. Embrace it. Jesus referred to it as, John did, as receiving Jesus. Believing into him. Trusting, relying upon him. When I was a kid, I went to summer Christian camp every summer, like every good kid in my generation. And, and Friday night, this was always the illustration. Every Friday night. I don't know about you, but this was mine. To Seneca Hills Bible Conference. Picture this, a big canyon, tightrope across the canyon. A man looks to the crowd and says, do you think I can walk across this tightrope? People, oh Yeah. He looks like he's rather acrobatic. So he walks across and comes back. And then he takes a barrel and he says, do you believe I can wheel this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And everybody goes, oh yeah. So he does it. Then he puts in a sack of flour, 150 pounds. Do you think I can wheel this across and back? Yeah, no problem. Takes it out. Points to a man sitting in the crowd and says, do you believe I could put you in here and take you across? Now, what would be the indicator that that person would believe that? He'd get in. He'd rest. He'd rely. He'd trust. You see, that's this aspect of faith, of trust, of reliance upon. Saying, yes, I'm going to sink my whole, my all in Jesus. My whole destiny. My whole life, everything that I think, everything that I like, everything that I'll hate, every direction of my life, I'll sink upon Christ and Him alone. In a court of law, when the defense attorney says, our case or the defense rests, they just don't simply mean we're done. They mean that we're now at a point where we're able to confidently rely upon all the evidence, upon all the truth that we've submitted. And we're stopping now because, because we're going to rest here. We're going to trust. We're going to rely that everything that we've said and done is sufficient to convince the jury of our particular stance here. And when we rest in Christ it means that we're relying upon him utterly, that we've seen all the evidence and we embrace and we say, yes, that's where my life will be. But you say, well, I'm going to rest in the fact that there really isn't any God at all and it really isn't necessary. But you see, you have to ask the question, then who are you trusting really? Or you may say, well, I'm going to trust and I'm going to rest in the fact that God is loving and will accept everyone. And you have to ask the question, then in whom are you really trusting? Especially when Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. There was no other way outside of him. And when God went to all that trouble to bring him and to make him be an atoning sacrifice for our sin, 
Why would you think there could be other ways? And you say, well, I believe there's always lead to God. And you have to ask the question, how do you know that? Are you omniscient? And you've, you've scaled the heights and sit in God's seat and you see that really they all come to God. How can you even say that given the uniqueness of the work of Christ? And if Christ is one of those ways, isn't he unique because his way says that there must be an atonement for sin because the holiness of his Father. How could there be any other way save that of Christ? Peter looks at this people and says, you believe in him. This is no small thing. Everything rests here. Check your heart. But then Peter says also that they love him. Now you might say, is this an extra requirement? We've got to believe in him and love him? Of course, that's absurd to think that. Because how could you believe in him and not be inclined to love him? Not have affections towards him? See, we have to realize that our love for Christ and his love for us are different at the very source. And by that I mean this. That God's love for us, Christ's love for us, is gracious. It's an unmerited favor that he gives to us. We're not worthy of his love. We're his enemies. In fact, Paul describes that in Romans. In chapter 5, verse 6, for instance, he says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, listen, this is the love of God. He died for us when we were ungodly, that is, when we were against him. When there wasn't anything in us for God to look and say, that's lovely. He didn't say that. He looked at us and said, that's ungodly. That's against me. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely dare to die for a righteous person, though perhaps perhaps for a good person one would, would dare even to die. That is we might think about. It might be in the realm of possibility for us to die, give our lives for somebody who's who's really good and good to us. But that isn't what God did. Notice, he says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was then that he died for us. And, And that blows every category of our minds. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us Because he loves us. Because he's loving. It says something about his character, not ours. It wouldn't be unjust for God not to love us. That would be justice. But he's gracious to us, not just. He pours his justice out on his son that he might be gracious to us. That's his love. But our love for God is different in the sense that he's utterly worthy of our love. It is unjust for us not to love him. It's sin for us not to love him. So Jesus could say the greatest commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, not to love God is sin. 
So when Peter's looking at this group of people, says, you love him. He's not adding a, an extra requirement on, 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 on being saved. He's just simply, oh, if you believe in him, if you know who he is, and you should if you believe in him, and if you rely upon him because he's done that for you and is that for you, then how could you not love him? Most certainly you should. And in fact, the scriptures replete with that. For instance, the measure of this love can be seen by way of illustration in Matthew in chapter 10 from the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus said, whoever loves... I'll give you a second if you want to find that. Whoever loves his, whoever loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. So Jesus is saying, "Listen, I'm supreme in your affections. There isn't anyone else, even the person, the people who are, who should hold high in your affections. Your parents, your spouse." your children. He says, but if you love them more than me, you're not getting who I am. Because I'm worth more than all of that. And then the hearts of this love, Ephesians, in chapter 6. In verse 24, the apostle writes this, says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's an incorruptible love. Some would have an undying love. Some would have a sincere love. That is this love that we're to have for Christ because he's worthy of it. If we really know who he is and what he's done for us, then it, it, it should, should never fade. It should only grow for him. Turn to John in chapter 20. The necessity of this love. Actually, chapter 21, I'm sorry. In verse 15, this is Jesus and Peter himself, which is why Peter knows a great deal about loving Christ. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said a second time to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, do you know how difficult it is to have someone follow you after you tell them that if they do, they're going to die a horrible death? The necessity of love for Christ is the only way really that we'll do that is if we love him. Not if it's some sense of duty, 
none of it's simply just an objective belief in the facts of him. But there's a warmth, there's a movement in our affections for him that would be willing to die for him. The necessity of it. And you see, there's a great danger as well if we do not love Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. In verse 9, Jesus is speaking about difficulties and he says, They will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Say, be careful. Feed this love, nurture it. Of course, you know the passage in Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 2 concerning the church in Ephesus. Jesus says this to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. He's saying, don't do that. This love is crucial. Because again, the stakes are high. The last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. The Apostle Paul says this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. See, our faith in him, if we really not only know the facts about him, but trust and rely upon him, that's to feed and to bring fruit in our lives, a love for Christ, how can it not? How can it not? Thomas Vincent, an old dead friend in the 17th centuries, 17th century, wrote a book on this passage called The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. It's a slow read, but a good one. He was a great man. Thomas Vincent preached in the early 1660s. And it was a difficult time in Scotland because, and in England, he was in England, in England because in 1662 there was a ban on preachers of his type that is not part of the state church. And so he was kicked out of his church in 1665. The Great Plague hit London. And it was his conviction that he should minister among those dying of the plague. And everyone tried to convince him otherwise. The other ministers pulled him together and said, you're a young man, you have great promise. If you do this, you'll only die. I mean, this is just off the subject. And he said this, He said he seriously weighed the whole matter that having examined the state of his own soul, he could cheerfully look death in the face. All right? That's where this is coming from. That kind of, he didn't die, by the way. Uh, he ministered. Everybody in his house died. Seven people in his house died of the plague, but he continued to minister amongst those, and he didn't die for another 15 or 13 years. He says this, The ground of this love to Christ is the discovery and believing apprehensions of Christ's loveliness and love. That is, he says, 
When you discover and believingly apprehend, that is, you grab a hold with all your guts, with all your might, who Jesus is and what he's done, that will be the very source of love for him. Do you remember Jesus visiting the house of that Pharisee, Simon? Find it in Luke chapter 7. And a woman came in, you remember, with some oil and began to weep and wash Jesus' feet with her tears, dry with her hair, and anoint his feet with oil. Simon was just completely upset. He went around to everybody sort of gossiping, saying, Jesus only knew what kind of woman this is. He would never allow her to touch him. Jesus, being Jesus, turned to him and said, Can I tell you a story? He said, Let's say, Simon said, Yes. He said, Let's say that two men owed this other man a debt, one 500 denarii, one 50. Both significant, but obviously one 10 times more than the other. And Jesus said to Simon, let's say, let's say this man forgave both debts. Who would love him more? Simon said, well, the one who had the biggest debt. Jesus said, now you're going to double jeopardy. That's good. That's good. This woman, he said, of much. She's been forgiven much. Those who have been forgiven little love little. How much have you been forgiven? How were you forgiven? Upon whose life did that forgiveness come? At what cost did it come and to whom? When we think about Christ, you see, how can we not, how can we not love him? And we think that he's working everything for good. And we think that he's so concerned about us that he disciplines us in love. And we think that he's, 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 he's reigning and ruling over everything for the sake of the church, for the sake of us. And we think of his wonderful character and who he is. How can we love him? Another old dead guy, Henry Scrogel. Same era. Says this, John Piper has made this quote famous, though he took it out of context, but that's all right. He says, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. All right? Let me say that again. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Meaning... Your soul, my soul, is measured by what we love. And if we're unwilling to love one such as Christ, what does that say about the worth of our own soul? What does that say about our own, our own hearts? Okay, I'm going to make you mad. Been thinking about making you mad. Been thinking about this. Now, I'm gonna, what I'm about to say is going to make some of you feel guilty. You're going, to make, you're going to think you have to come and confess to me. You don't, okay? It's just an illustration. So love me. Now, this week, something enormous seemed to happen in America. It was the last episode of the sitcom Friends. Now, everyone's talking about it, and zillions of people are sad. Now, do you love me? If we love Christ, 
And we, if I could say this, this is going to sound horrible, but just go with me on this. If we're really entertained by him, that is, if we're delighted by him, that is, if, if, if our hearts are set afire by him, because of all that he gives to us and all that he is and all that he stands for and all that he promises, can we really be entertained by a show of people who are essentially living immoral lives. I dare say that if the people on that show were really your friends, you wouldn't be entertained by them as a believer in Christ. You'd be saddened. You'd be praying. There'd be prayer requests. Your heart would be wrenching for that any one of those characters was your brother or your sister. You would be grieved by them. You wouldn't be entertained. And, and I think when Jesus sees us being entertained by people living a life that he would never give to us, doesn't he say, what do you really want? Do you want what they have or, or do you want who I am? Peter looked at this people and said, you love him. You rely upon him with your whole self and your affections are towards him. And the only thing that you could think that could ever make you happy is whatever he has to give. You love him. And he says you rejoice in him with joy inexpressible, which is one of those wonderful kind of expressions because he's saying, you have so much joy and I can see it because you're expressing it, even though it's inexpressible. It's that great. And it's filled with glory. That is, it's the same joy or thereabouts that the great saints in heaven right now are filled with. Because in the midst of this, it isn't that your life has gone awry because of all these troubles. It's really in the midst of all this, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith. Because it's being tested genuine. You're receiving the salvation of your souls, which is knowing Christ more, trusting Christ more, loving Christ more, rejoicing in him more. See, in the midst of their lives, Christ was taking away everything else that could possibly be a point of trust for them. He was taking away everything that might otherwise distract them, everything that might be lovely to them, anything that might be entertaining to them, other than him. And so Peter's saying, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Don't get this wrong. Don't think you have a horrible life. Understand that through this, you're getting the outcome of this tested genuine faith, the very salvation of your souls. And all this, he says, without ever once looking upon the face of Christ. And that, you see, is amazing. And I think it's rather amazing to Peter because Peter had this advantage. At least it seems like an advantage to us. He was able to see Jesus. He saw Jesus before the crucifixion. He, he saw Jesus after the crucifixion, that is, the resurrected Christ. He saw Christ ascend and, and, and there are days when I think, Jesus, if you could just come and sit there and tell me, it would really make this a lot easier. If I could only see him. But Peter, it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem that Peter has that same perspective, even, so, even though he saw Jesus. In fact, uh, in Second Peter, he describes it, 
Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. When, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up in the mountains, and, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up, and Jesus' body is transformed, and he sees all of that. I'm thinking, that help? You know, that help? In the midst of all that help? But it won't. It's unnecessary. Do you remember? The night that Jesus, the day that Jesus was resurrected, he showed up that night. And all the disciples were there except Thomas. Jesus leaves. Thomas comes. The disciples tell Thomas about it. I think he's ticked. He says, listen, I won't believe unless I touch his wounds. Eight days later, Jesus appears to everybody, including Thomas. And he invites Thomas to touch him. Thomas touches him and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Ah, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's us. That's everybody after the ascension, except for Paul, he got a glimpse. That's us. Jesus, in fact, in his high priestly prayer, prayed, whoops, ah, that's good, prayed for us. Karen bought me this watch when I was ordained. I'm afraid if it breaks, I'm done. Um, My calling is, time's up. Um, First time the battery went dead, like 15 years ago, I went, uh, but anyway, I'm not that superstitious. But, um, But that's us, you see. Blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for all those who will believe by his word. Because, you see, seeing Jesus wasn't sufficient for belief. You can read this, Matthew 28. Jesus, resurrected right before he ascends, shows himself to all these people, and the scripture says, and some doubted. There he is. How could you doubt then? it's not a matter of these it's never been a matter of these it's a matter of the heart and it's a matter of the work of the spirit to give us eyes that can't see I love this song that we sang today open the eyes of my heart Lord I want to see you you see that, that's it and yeah I want him to return I want, him, I want to see but open let my heart see you and how do we do that? Well, the very word of God, we have to understand. Peter, in First Peter, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We mustn't ever forget that the Bible's alive. It's alive. It's living. The Word of God is alive. And when, the, when Jesus is dimming on you, 
and you want to see him, where do you go? You don't go to those little pictures people carry in their wallets. That won't help you. You go to the word of God and you read of him. You can read of him in Genesis. You can read of him in Leviticus. You can read of him in the Psalms. You can read of him in the prophets. You can read of him in the gospels. You can read of him in Acts. You can read of him in all these epistles. And as we read of him, and as the Spirit of God uses that word concerning him, we see him. He comes into view. He comes into focus. And then what happens? We begin to rely on him even more. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And we learn to love him more because we realize what he's done. We realize who he is. We realize there's none like him. St. Augustine said this. He says, It's the proper work of faith to believe what you do not see. And it is the proper reward of faith to see what you have believed. Yes. And of course, tricky little St. Augustine had two meanings to that last line. One, even now, God rewards us by letting us see him. And a day will come when we will see him. But may it be said of us now, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you have not yet seen him, you believe in him. And rejoice with great joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, please work that in us. May we be a people of such, of such faith, of such love, of such joy. that we'd be walking around and people would think those people are being saved. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening and elders available to pray and all that. The response, excuse me, to the benediction is this one. I love Christ. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him. Who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy, to our only wise God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I love Christ. Hallelujah.